Oh, Father, we do thank you for this opportunity um, to feed upon your word, to be stimulated by your word. And we pray, Lord, that you will indeed inspire us, encourage us, strengthen us in your word this evening. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you will guide us in uh, the meaning of the word of God as we look in, uh, into it. And uh, we pray, Lord, for your Holy Spirit's help. Uh, Lord, we are aware that we are totally dependent upon you for salvation, for forgiveness, for day-by-day living for you. But Lord, we also need your help in the way we conduct ourselves in the church and uh, how we can be blessings to one another. And we ask you, Lord, to help us from your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, I've called uh, tonight's uh, message... uh, God's inconvenient truth, I, we talked uh, about Ephesians chapter 5 on uh, Sunday, but this is about God's inconvenient truth about women's ministry, which m- may sound a provocative and slightly ambiguous title, it's meant to be, uh, because we are looking at 1 Timothy 5, um, uh, starting at, uh, just, just find it for a second, sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 2, I mean, starting at verse um, 12, and we are taking in the first, uh, the first verse of chapter 1. Now, just remember that um, the distinction between chapter 2 and chapter 3 is purely arbitrary. Um, well, not purely arbitrary, but the person who invented chapters and verses was writing hundreds and hundreds of years after uh, the Bible was originally written, after Paul wrote this letter. There was no uh, division between um, verse uh, 15 of uh, Timothy 2 and verse 1 uh, of chapter 3, and it's quite important. It's quite important that there isn't a division. Uh, let's uh, now read what he says. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, As I said, it is an ambiguous title because, in fact, I am going to be spending an awful lot of uh, tonight uh, on talking about women's ministries before we talk about um, the the qualification, uh, we might say, uh, or the condition um, which Paul writes about in verse 12 onwards, about the limits to women's ministries. But I want to be talking about women's ministries because I really believe that this is one of the, uh, one of the inconvenient and most marvelous truths in the church. And I say it's inconvenient for a lot of people because a lot of males actually in Christianity, in the church, actually underestimate and depreciate women's ministries. Uh, and we have, you know, many of us uh, who are older, like myself, grew up in a culture of clear male domination and uh, it can be understood why some females really object to what they call patri- you know, pa- patriarchal attitudes and so on, and male chauvinist attitudes and misogynistic attitudes, because actually <laughs> there are many men of my generation that used to have those and probably still do some of them. And it can percolate into, uh, into attitudes to biblical truths 
um, that actually um, females can be underestimated, depreciated, can be, can be uh, actually not realized how significant, how important they are to the life of the church. And uh, I want to be thinking about women's ministries to begin with before we then look at this qualification that Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 5, 12 onwards. Now, I, I know of a, a situation uh, where uh, I came into contact with it some time ago now, I suppose, but uh, where a pastor came to a church where most of the membership were, was old ladies. And he basically, his message to these old ladies was, your church is finished it, there's a new church, and it's, it's come about now, and, and everything that you've done, and it, I, he didn't use these words, because if he'd, he'd used these words, he'd have realized what a, what a ridiculous thing it was to say. But your prayers, your service, your witness, your, your worship, you know, it, it, that's all ended because a new church has started. And basically, I'm sure he didn't mean any harm, but he betrayed an attitude, basically, of despising old people, yes, firstly, but old ladies who'd actually kept this particular church going for decade after decade after decade after decade through financial support, loyalty to meetings, above all prayer and witness. They'd been, they were actually pillars of the church. And to say that, oh, well, you know, that, that, that's history, that's nothing, betrays actually a view Firstly, of old people, but actually it really was of old ladies. Oh, you know, how many times do we hear people moaning about the fact, oh, well, we've got these old ladies in our church. You may, uh, you may know the quotation by uh, John Wesley, who said, give me a hundred young men, I can't remember the exact words, but something like, hundred young men who, who uh, you know, are completely, um, you know, holy men and committed to, the, to, to uh, Christ, and, and I will shake the gates of hell. You know, you use those words, shake the gates of hell. Uh, now, I'll be honest, I believe if you had a hundred old ladies in any church situation, prayerful, seeking the Lord, you shake the gates of hell with that company. And uh, any pastor should be ab- over the moon to have praying old ladies. To have a hundred of them would be wonderful, you know, in any church. The, 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 last, the last revival historically on British soil, uh, happened in, in the Scottish Isles, in Lewis, 1949. There's a BBC radio broadcast, we call it today Radio 4, it was a, the home service in those days, describing this incredible shake-up of the island and an amazing revival that resulted in permanent conversions, people going out as missionaries and ministers and all sorts of things from this revival. And actually, the, the people who were the praying people were two old ladies who night after night spent hour after hour, month after month, year after year, praying for God to visit their island. And he did, in wonderful power. And uh, these are seemingly the inconvenient truths, firstly, of the modern church, which is absolutely obsessed with youth, PR, glory of, of, of meetings, and so on and so forth, rather than the priceless a- a- assets of the church, which is in the first place, Old females. But actually also, I think it's an inconvenient truth, or has been in the past, of the fact of the wonderful ministries that are are put forward in the Bible. Uh, The wonderful role is given to women in the history of redemption uh, in the Bible itself. Um, 
It says in Psalm 68 and verse 11, perhaps this is, this is a verse I'd like you to look at. I will speak about this just for a few seconds. It says this, 68 verse 11, the, the Lord gives the word. And uh, there, referring to this, the word of God as a fire, as like an earthquake, as like a, a, an earth-shaking event. The Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil. Now, here we have uh, God, through his word of power, suddenly changing the condition of his oppressed people. And we're told that those who bore the tidings of this tremendous uh, victory were, in fact, women who proclaim this, this, this triumph. Actually, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, on numerous occasions, after the vic- great victories, women uh, proclaim the victory in dancing, tambourines, musical, uh, musical, uh, uh, um, musical celebration. This happens after um, deliverance out of the ha- hand of Jabin by the defeat of C- Sisera, uh, after David and Goliath, uh, and four or five other uh, incidents. Great was the company of those that published it. And, uh, you know, the thing is this, that's the Old Testament role for the women, was singing tambourines and dancing. But it's clear in the New Testament, (laughs) firstly, we don't have any uh, incidents of dancing or tambourines in the New Testament. But I tell you what we do have. We have a great company of women proclaiming the word of God. Look at this amazing fact. Firstly... It was the women who were the first um, witnesses of this, or, or the main witnesses of the suffering of Christ. Remember, Peter and the other men, the other apostles, were all cowering away in some dark room somewhere. John was there, yes, by the cross. But the, the main company of people comforting Jesus and witnessing his suffering on the cross were women. And indeed, they were the first to risk their lives. They were the ones who had the, the gall to go before, uh, before uh, the authorities and asked to be able to, to, to uh, look after the body on the resurrection morning. They were the first that God privileged to witness the resurrection. And this is very, very significant and I believe is actually a, um, a fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy. And they were the ones who witnessed to the resurrection to the disciples. Jesus actually told them, go to the disciples and tell them this news. You know, it's terrific. And um, actually, if we look in the New Testament, and in fact, we could include Old Testament characters, we see that what I will call the glorious company of women or the goodly company of women. You may know the, the, uh, the Anglican, um, old Anglican prayer book has a thing called the Te Deum, which is, a, uh, you know, t- uh, 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 song of uh, praise to God and it says heaven and earth are full of the majesty of the glory the glorious company of the apostles praise thee the goodly fellowship of the prophets praise thee the noble army of martyrs praise thee but we can add to this the goodly company of women praise God and proclaim as indeed was said in the Old Testament proclaimed the word of God and have a crucial place in world evangelization now hang on you're saying oh Am I over-egging the pudding? Well, firstly, let's look firstly at a woman who was responsible for a revival, okay, in the New Testament. Who was that woman? 
Let's look at John chapter 4. As soon as I say the word, you'll know, you'll know what I mean. John chapter 4, of course, is the story of a Samaritan woman. Now, she had the, uh, she had the problem that, firstly, she was a Samaritan in a society that lived nearby. Well, let's put it like this. The, uh, the disciples who had come from, uh, uh, come from um, Galilee, um, uh, who were Jews, and they'd come visiting Samaria... And uh, the Jews had nothing to do with Samaritans, but she was also a woman. And uh, if, we, if we can look at this for a second, you'll notice, because uh, we, we've got very little time tonight, look at verse 41, you'll see that it says, oh, well, in fact, verse 39 onwards, it's on page 1057 in John's Gospel, or you can just listen to me. John chapter 4, verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And when it says many believe, it, it was, it, I think it was quite a few. And, and that's why uh, not long later, a couple of years later maybe, it was that Philip uh, had this tremendous uh, um, ministry in Samaria. And uh, uh, there was a, a, a fantastic revival under Philip. But that revival, I believe, started with this woman. Many believe because of his testimony. He, uh, and what was her testimony? He told me all that I ever did. Now, how did she testify to people? She must have met uh, women and talked to them, but she obviously approached strangers. Many men <laughs> were, were talking. Were they? I mean, some people have hypothesized a woman may have been a prostitute. She certainly was a woman uh, of easy morals. Was she, a, she approaching old sinful companions? Was, uh, or did she actually, like I've seen some women in Stratford, Across people as they're going through a square, talking to them about Jesus, or indeed like our own uh, our own uh, church members with tracts, speaking to them. Of course, you don't have tracts, but you, she approached people. It says, um, verse 40, 41, and many more believed because of his word. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word, and it was Jesus' word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the saviour of the world. The woman wasn't necessarily a great preacher of, uh, of uh, scriptural truth, but she had an experience and testimony of what Jesus had done in her life. And she had a powerful effect upon, upon uh, her, her own locality. Now, also, let's think not just of women as evangelists and proclaimers, but think of... The ministry of women in prayer. Uh, Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2 talks about Anna. This event happened, of course, at the time of the birth of Jesus. And uh, it tells us about this lady who was a, who had, had been a prophetess. And uh, she um, uh, was uh, very old, advanced in years. And uh, as a widow, um, she she. She was, um, uh, it says, she, as a widow until she was 84, uh, she, she didn't depart from the temple worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So another woman that is highlighted, she, of course, had no, she had no idea of the details of Jesus' life. He was still a baby. 
But she knew that the Christ event had happened. She knew that this was the Messiah, the promised king, the one who had come to bring the kingdom into Israel. And she witnessed to it. She was a woman of prayer and she was a woman of witness. And again, uh, her, her words, I'm sure, were not lost. And I'm sure many of those people who were, who were, um, who were uh, young then, uh, 30 years later, uh, would have had a um, background to their coming to believe in Jesus. So we could see that, I mean, I, I could actually go on, but I, I'm not, but I could have talked about Elizabeth, I could, talk, could have talked about Mary, and we could go into more detail about the resurrection witness of the women, um, but, but I'm not going to. I'm going to move on now to say that it's clear that uh, women have this status, role, and an amazing occupation painted in the New Testament of being uh, women believers, of being in the vanguard of Christian ministry, of minister of the gospel, ministering the gospel, and praying. Um, but we also have norms given uh, for uh, a Christian woman's life. Uh, so, for instance, if we could look now at 1 Timothy chapter 5, um, three chapters on from our, um, our uh, chapter actually we're looking at in detail, um, we can see that um, a Christian woman uh, is given certain characteristics. This is the way New Testament women were expected to live. Well, this wasn't, you know, special people. These were just ordinary people. Now, the background to it, 1, 1 Timothy 5 verse 3, uh, Paul is talking about widows. Now, why? Well, because basically, of course, in those days, if you were a widow, um, a Christian widow, you were in a very precarious and vulnerable situation. Your husband had died, but also in becoming a Christian, it may very well have been that you yourself would have been rejected by your idolatrous relations, if actually um, they were, they were non-Jews. And if they were Jews, it's very likely you'd have been rejected by your Jewish family. So a Christian widow would have had no, no means of support, no work, nothing. And if she had no children to look after her, Therefore, special provision was made for these women. Obviously, if they had family, we're told later on that the family is expected, uh, believing family members are expected to look after the widows. But there was obviously a role kept of women who were um, in need and needed maintenance. And we're told, 1 Timothy 5 verse 4, if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. But she who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Now notice, this, this widow uh, has, doesn't have any other family responsibility. She's all alone. No children to look after her. Um, uh, our equivalent today might be a, a single woman, a spinster who's never been married, um, perhaps. But there's no one else. But what this woman is a woman of prayer, constant prayer. Now, this is an inconvenient truth in our generation, uh, amongst Christians as well as non-Christians, because this, this ministry of personal prayer when you've got time, it, is this something that we really emphasize? I mean, when people are retired, do they sit in front of a TV for three or four hours a day or longer? There's nothing else to do. 
Maybe they can get to church meetings on a Sunday. But do they have this Christian life that's mentioned here? This was the norm. This wasn't thought, thought special. This is a normal, uh, a normal uh, woman who has no other activities. Well, she's a woman of prayer. Also, we're told in 1 Timothy 5 verse 10, she has a reputation for good works. If she's brought up children, has she shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Now, this again was the norm. This was, this was considered to be normal that, that a woman um, would have Perhaps, obviously, if she, if she had children, would have brought them up and looked after them. But it would have shown hospitality, would have, would have shown welcoming to strangers, but especially to Christian strangers. And would have washed the feet of the saints. That means do practical work for those who need it. And that might mean caring for the old, doing those, you know, rather... Um, Difficult jobs that you know that you have to do for an old person who's very, very, uh, perhaps uh, 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 disabled, perhaps mentally disabled by dementia and so on, has cared for the afflicted, has looked after those who, day after day, are ill. Has has been the national health service because there wasn't any in those days. Has been part of the national health service to her neighbour. Has devoted herself to every good work. Now, th- this. You know, these things that are mentioned here are not meant to be viewed as things, oh, yeah, no, something happened. These are glorious and wonderful works of love. This is, this is the life of Jesus manifest in the life of a woman. And that was considered the norm. And um, although we as churches believe that um, we don't... Um, how can, how can I put this? We don't devote ourselves as a church to arranging social work for the area. We don't say to our deacons, right, arrange to visit every person in the neighborhood that may have uh, uh, problems and do the work of social work. Because no, we, we, that isn't our job as a church. But our job as individuals may very well be to do exactly that work that a social worker might be for someone who we know is in need, is afflicted, is sick, is ill, is in need of... Having their meals cooked, who is lonely. And the wonderful thing is that many women I've known over the years, over the last 50 years I've been a Christian, many older women, but many women have done just that. They're completely neglected in the sense of we're not growing attention to what they do, but it is a wonderful and glorious thing that is being done, usually by women, sometimes I remember it's 90% of the time done by women, of doing these good works that a church is meant to be characterized by. As I said, a church is not characterized by its organization of itself being the center of, if you like, the administration of those good works. No, our, our job in church is to, is to um, lead the spirituality and to lead uh, the prayer and the, and the teaching, equipping people to do good works. But a church should be characterized by some members within it doing good works. Now, let's just give a simple example of Dorcas in uh, Acts of the Apostles. Acts chapter 9 and verse uh, 36. If you want to look it up, you can. It says this. It was, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. And the lady died. And we're told that Peter um, actually was 
travelling in, in Joppa, and uh, he he was um, went to be with um, the neighbours and friends and relatives of Dorcas, who 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 just died. So, verse 39, so Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room where a body was. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. Now, what does that mean? Well, these weren't just little presents that she'd given, you know. Oh, here's my Christmas present. Isn't that nice? She was actually clothing people. In those days, they weren't going to go to Primark and have 100 garments in their cupboard from Primark. They had very little. And she spent a vast amount of time making clothes which she gave away to people. These were the good works. She made these for poor people. And as I've said, I'll say it again, there's the glorious company of women who have devoted themselves to proclaiming the gospel, to praying, and to doing good works. And often those who do good works are unheralded. But the Lord knows of this wonderful ministry that women are involved in. And uh, I'll say it again. Often we hear the complaint, oh, two-thirds of the church are women. We've only got one-third men. <laughs> well, I'll repeat John Wesley's, uh, John Wesley's um, quotation, and I'll amend it. Give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I care not a straw whether they be clergymen or laymen, such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. And again I say it, give me a company of a hundred ladies, old ladies, and they'll shake the gates of hell. If they are believers, they fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. Well, women have these wonderful ministries. And above all, of course, they share with men this glorious fact that we are priests. Uh, It was the hallmark of the revelation that Luther, and then particularly the Anabaptists, took up this wonderful idea that the priesthood of all believers, there isn't a special priesthood that wear uh, robes and, and, and uh, talk in Latin and, uh, and uh, show themselves to be a, a, a cast apart from the rest of the world. There aren't a special, that in the church there's not that. Every believer is a priest. Every believer is one that proclaims the excellency of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which is what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, men and women. And we have these opportunities to proclaim uh, the excellencies of the Lord. Now, that's, you know, that's what we do when we have a, a prayer time. What we do on a Sunday when we are led in hymns, uh, the, the preacher chooses hymns that we are led uh, to sing in. But it's also true that when we have our sharing times, whether it be in church or privately, when we tell of what God has done and, his, and the excellencies of, of what we are learning about uh, through his word. You know, and uh, Henry and I really want to encourage us all to have 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 excellent things to talk about the Lord, to bring, you know, to the congregation corporately, by testimony, speaking uh, to encourage people. Um, And uh, I want us to notice that uh, Paul himself, when talking about women, 
uh, two particular women who actually uh, ha were having a bit of a Barney. We don't know what the argument was about, but they were they'd completely alienated, it seems, uh, from reading between the lines. Um, they alienated from one another. And he says in Philippians 4 and verse 2, I entreat amongst the Philippians, Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. You know, just cool it down, calm it down, just agree together in the Lord. And he says, and yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, who na whose names are in the book of life. Now, Paul worked hand in hand with these women. They were women who put their lives at risk, associating with Paul, who frequently uh, came under persecution. And secondly, they labored with him. So um, what, a, what a great thing it is. What a great thing women's ministry is. And women indeed, we're told, um, uh, can not only proclaim the gospel, but we, they can teach other women. Um, it says in Titus 2 verse 3, old women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good and to train the young women to love their husbands and children. Now, I believe that there's from time to time been a controversy whether even women should teach Sunday schools. It seems crazy, that, doesn't it? When, when you think that uh, we're specifically told that they're to train young women um, to, uh, uh, up to, to, uh, in, in family life, but it's clear that... Uh, the teaching of children by men and women is our duty. And, uh, but here is the, you know, now I'm going to go on to the content of 5 verse 12. I mean, I could go on because I, I, I think it's just the most incredible neglected thing in churches of all sorts, women's ministries. I say that because in the Reformed churches, I, so sometimes you get the you get the hint that everything's man-centered about the ministry of the ministry of the gospel. Um, and in charismatic churches, although they go on, they may even have their women preachers, which we'll talk about in a second. Actually, they don't necessarily have the energy, the dedication, and the devotion that the New Testament calls for. And maybe we also have to take that to heart for ourselves as well. The ministry of women in the church is a glorious and wonderful thing. Uh, Psalm 68 says how, how wonderful it is. You know, this, this, this thing when this great host of women are operating in their ministry. But before I move on to actually now look at the, the qualification Quali uh, the, the, the qualification to this that Paul puts in 1 Timothy 5 verse 12 when he, he talks about I'll just read it again he talks about the limitation upon women's ministries uh, sorry 1 Timothy 2 um, he, he says this he says I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man rather she is to remain quiet now, before I actually want to look at this in, in a bit of detail, I just want to, I want to say this. I actually think that there is a problem that men and women share um, about their attitude to position, status. 
Um, you see, I think that there is a there is a problem that many people have over the desire to be somebody. The desire to actually show yourself to be important. The desire to actually uh, have a name. You may remember that uh, this uh, incident about um, Babylon, when Babylon was first built, the Tower of Babel was built. These men wanted to make themselves a name. They wanted to be known. And the problem, actually, when we're dealing with um, being a pastor, the oversight, or whatever you want to call this, being a bishop, uh, that is mentioned in 1 Timothy 2, is precisely that both men and women often want to have a name. They want to be important. They want to, to actually have a significance. Now, I want us to notice these chairs that we've got here. Now, I'm not trying to have a go at um, those who created the furniture of this church ages and ages ago, because these kind of chairs are in most Baptist churches. Who are they for? Well, they're not meant for ordinary members of the congregation. Why not? <laughs> well, usually these kind of chairs are usually for deacons or for the pastor. Why? <laughs> um, well, it's difficult to it's a difficult to um, it's difficult to say why actually on the basis of the New Testament. Jesus said specifically, you know that. Um, you know, we're not to differentiate between people as though they're different because they may be a pastor or maybe a deacon. Jesus actually forbade the use of titles. He said, don't, don't let anybody call themselves a father. And he meant by that not a biological father. He meant like a priest calling himself a father, which, of course, the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church has done for centuries. A, a recent Roman Catholic academic um, um, looked into the passage in detail and basically came to the conclusion that uh, it was totally illegitimate for the Catholic Church to call their, their priest's father because it, it, it completely denies what Jesus says. Jesus even said that you shouldn't call someone teacher as though, uh, you know, uh, rabbi, as though he's special because he's rabbi, oh rabbi. It's all part of the Pharisees' desire to be important to exalt themselves before men and women. And to a certain I often, you know, I mean, the actual furniture of, of older churches, including Baptist churches, as I give this impression, oh, pastor's important. Now, one of the great things about Henry, is for 40 years, he's always been known as Henry in this church, you know. Uh, and he, he doesn't want people calling him pastor. Uh, I know that because he's talked about it with me and it's, it's been the same over the ages. But people always want to, you know, they always want to say, oh, reverend. Oh, reverend, can I have your view? Oh, pastor. Oh, oh, evangelist. You know, people give themselves these titles, and Jesus specifically forbade them. Now, why am I talking about titles? Because the life of a Christian is to be a servant, is to love serving the Lord, doing what he or she can do in all of these glorious ministries that we can do. What makes being an overseer more important than a woman who visits the sick and no one knows it about her life, year after year, helping older, old people, old infirm people? What makes that the pastor more important? Nothing. <laughs> 
Now, the job of being a pastor and overseer is incredibly important, but that doesn't make the job doesn't make the man important. The job actually uh, is an amazing grace of God that is you know that people that are unimportant, are sinful, are weak, are given this most wonderful and marvelous job of preaching and also of applying it in practice in the oversight of the church. But this is not something that makes someone, you know, a better person. But I do believe, I mean, from talking over the years, I can remember 40 years ago talking to a lady who was very bitter because um, in her evangelical church she wasn't allowed to be an elder. She was in her 50s. I was only in my 30s at the time. And she was very bitter. And at the time I thought, well, if you want to serve the Lord, what? Just get ahead with it. You know, you want to, if you want to look after people and help them and encourage them and do all these sort of things, well, you can do that. You don't actually have to have a name. I am a pastor to do that. You have all of these glorious and wonderful acts of service that we can do. Why not get ahead with it? Now, let me give this an, uh, an example in terms of the prophetic ministry. Now, we've mentioned already that um, um, Anna was a prophetess. Well, actually, in the New Testament, quite clearly there were prophetesses. We're told Agabus' daughters were prophetesses. If we could turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, um, you'll see that it... Um, actually, no, we're, uh, 1 Corinthians um, 11, first of all, before we go to 1 Corinthians 14. You'll see it says that um, Paul's talking about head coverings. That's the, um, the, the heading that's given in the ESV on page 1138. And uh, Paul says, every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. Now Paul clearly here says that in the church it was normal for women to prophesy. There were women prophetesses. Now both Calvin and Hodge, who uh, greatly respected Calvin, actually <laughs> seems to turn it on its head. And, seem, and actually in, in, in both their commentaries they say that well, Paul, to begin with, just gives that as an example. He didn't really seriously mean that it was okay for a woman to be a prophet to, to give prophecies. Um, and it's later on in the in one Corinthians fourteen and verse thirty five, one Corinthians fourteen and verse thirty five, where he says, um, "I can just find it." Uh, thirty five. Uh, verse 34 and 35 the woman should keep silent in the churches for they're not permitted to speak but should be in submission as the law also says if there's anything they desire to learn let them ask the husbands at home for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church now um, they say well uh, Paul was later on went on to clarify that he was only using that as an example by that particular verse um, women shouldn't speak in church well I think that actually it is um, it's, I don't think it is uh, the correct interpretation. Um, you may note that um, Paul has been talking about, um, uh, uh, in verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let others weigh what is said. Now that's a referral to presumably the elders or maybe the whole congregation, uh, but I think it's the elders weighing whether or not the prophet that has been speaking, has been speaking the word of God. Now, it is in that context that Paul talks about women, uh, women um, talking in church. Now, what, we, what we're having, therefore, is a situation where 
women are starting to interfere with the oversight of the elders. They're starting to talk. They're perhaps saying, well, what's he talking about? Oh, what's he doing? And so on. And it's in that context that he says, well, women should, should be, be, be silent in that situation where um, the elders are weighing up what's going on and, and, and the woman is basically interfering with the elders, what the elders are talking about. And the reason I say this is because, to me, it seems quite clear that Paul is allowing that there were women prophetesses because why does the New Testament mention on many occasions, or at least a few occasions, of there being women prophetesses? Unless, of course, it, it was perfectly acceptable to the Holy Spirit and therefore to the Holy Spirit who, who guided Paul, that that should be so. And so I think it's pretty, pretty clear to me, at least, I, uh, I could be wrong, someone may, may be able to correct me, but it's pretty clear to me that um, he, uh, he um, accepted the fact that women could prophesy. But what's the difference between prophesying and being an, a, an elder or an overseer? Well, there's a big difference. Because um, the prophet gave a message that was given by God, but wasn't necessarily an expert on Christian teaching. Indeed, that's why the prophets were actually, um, their, what their words were weighed up by the elders um, who decided whether or not this truly was a word from God or not, whether it was authentic prophecy. The prophet was not, did not have the authority given to them that the apostles had and that um, the elders in a church have. And there's a distinction between being able to t- preach and teach the word and apply it to the lives of of people as an elder and have oversight or be the bishop of the church um, and being a prophet. Now, why, is, why do I say this? Well, there's a very interesting thing about um, prophecy. Uh, as you may know, our church uh, has the view that the New Testament makes it abundantly clear that prophecy was a gift um, that was um, a, a, a gift during the lives of the apostles. Once the apostles died, there were no more new prophets. Of course, the prophets didn't die all at once at the same time as the apostles, and no doubt they lived on for probably another generation or so. But prophecy itself was never meant to last, and it didn't last. It had died out um, until the time of Montanus, uh, who um, tried to resurrect this uh, this this, this uh, uh, prophetic ministry, just like the Pentecostals have, but failed abjectly to produce a New Testament, uh, a New Testament church. Now, but having said that the prophecy itself has died out, the blessings of the prof- prophetic ministry haven't died out. The blessings of the prophetic ministry is the New Testament. And the blessings of the prophetic ministry, we're told, uh, what's involved in it, um, Let's look at 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 3. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 3. It says, The one who prophesies speak to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. Now those three things, people's upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation, carry on in the, in, 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 uh, in mod, in, up to modern times, up to now. This is what preaching of the word of God does, but it's what sharing does. Paul tells everybody that we are to, uh, you know, we are to um, encourage one another, to upbuild one another. And how do we do it? We do it through the word of God. And so the prophetic ministry continues, and this 
continues for men and it continues for women. Women can upbuild, encourage, and console um, in the church. But, just, just in the same way as the prophetesses didn't have oversight of the church, so women are not allowed, according to the New Testament, to have oversight of the church. Now, can we uh, turn again to 1 Timothy chapter, chapter 2 for a second? Um, and uh, in just the last five minutes we're looking at the verses. But there's a reason why I've done this majority of the time. Because, frankly, this teaching is, is pretty plain. Um, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. Now, what does this mean? Teaching or exercise authority over a man. Well, I would link it with chapter 3 and verse 1. Which, as I've said, is not, is not in any sense divorced from uh, this uh, passage. It's, it gives this impression in all of, the, all of the translations because they follow the chapters and verses uh, of the, uh, a few hundred years ago. But the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. It's in the masculine. And it goes up, Paul goes on to talk about the overseer's task, the bishop or the bishop or the bishop's task, as the, new, new, the uh, Anglicans would call it. Um, or perhaps they don't call it that because they mean by bishop, of course, an administrator of many churches. But originally, the word has got to do with the oversight of a particular church. Um, and it goes on to talk about the qualifications of uh, an overseer, of a male overseer. Now, the overseer is someone who preaches and teaches. He pastors. And he, um, he is a shepherd of the flock. Now, the thing is, um, there may be people who, who are even listening to me or will listen to me at some time in the future, uh, listen to this talk and say, well, yeah, but I, I am a woman and I do pastor. I, I preach and I teach. Well, I'm not, uh, well, this is a world in which you, you may do what you may do, but the question is, if you break this scripture, then you are not following the rules of discipleship. Paul wrote under the governance of the Holy Spirit, and in fact, he, he says on numbers, numerous occasions, words to the effect, if you ignore me, you're ignoring the Spirit, you're ignoring God. You're actually, if, if you ignore what it said in 1 Corinthians 5 verse, um, sorry, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 12, you're actually, you're actually um, breaking the Bible as a whole. You see, um, most people, most evangelicals today um, don't like it when people try to introduce homosexuality as being um, a perfectly normal thing, when we know that the Bible teaches in Romans chapter 1 that it is not normal. It is actually uh, breaking the creation order. Romans 1 and 2 clearly shows us how um, men have rebelled against God and have, uh, men and women have got involved into homosexual behavior because of rebellion against God. We don't like when people try to ignore that scripture, so why are we ignoring this one? Above all, Jesus himself said that you know, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall never pass away. And then he gave a promise to his disciples in, in, uh, in, in John 14 and, and onwards 
promise of the Holy Spirit, that, he would, that, that the Holy Spirit would lead the apostles into all the truth. Not into a lie, not into a half-truth, not into a bit of this and a bit of that, but into the, into the truth. And we are ultimately, we're ultimately denying the authority of Jesus. We're, we're, we're breaking uh, the codes of discipleship. Now, naturally, people that disagree with what I'm saying come out with possible explanations for, for what Paul was saying here. And I think I'm going to have to refer to these. Um, um, uh, you know, I mean, some people say that actually Paul here and also in Corinthians was not talking about a universal truth, but he was talking about a local situation. Um, supposedly, um, some scholars say, and some evangelical scholars uh, talk about. Actually, in Ephesus, where Paul was talking to Timothy, um, there were, there was a, there was various cults that were teaching a false religion, you know, the resurrection was past, or various other things. And also, part of the, um, part of the, 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 the constellation of false teaching included false prophetesses, who were teaching, um, uh, all kinds of heresies, and it's these people that were actually, you know, causing problems and and uh, starting discussing heresies in the church, and um, they were wives of members of the congregation, and it's these people that Paul was being told told to quieten down, and likewise in Corinthians, when Paul is talking about women keeping silent, he he's talking about aspects of their. Uh, aspects of, uh, of the local situation that has actually got to be dealt with. This particular heresy of, uh, of the resurrection is past, you know, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 and so on, particularly operating there. Now, let's note that when Paul deals with these arguments in 1 Corinthians 2, in one, sorry, when he puts forward his, his uh, statement in 1 Timothy 2, he refers to creation doesn't refer to local situations. He says, Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. He says that women have a different role to men. We have these, all of these glorious ministries that we may be involved in in the church. But our oversight and the teaching, the authoritative teaching of the word of God, is a preserve of men, not women, but not all men, that small group of men who are called to, by the church to be overseers. And uh, of course women can teach, we know that, we, you know, I spent 38 years teaching, I know women can teach, of course they can, they can be wonderful teachers of people. Um, we're not talking a bit just about teaching um, uh, verbally, articulating truths clearly, we're talking about that process when people come to formulate their own beliefs and doctrines in their heart, when they come to their, their beliefs about doctrine and then articulate it, that's the, the question. And uh, that's why uh, Paul says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Well, what's that got to do with being a woman? Well, now... I'm just saying this is a possible explanation. I'm not saying it's uh, I'm not saying absolutely true, and I'll be glad for someone to educate me otherwise. But women's strengths, shown in their caring ministries, are linked to women's 
biology, brain, genetics. Women, we know, and it's often proclaimed very loudly, are emotionally intelligent, unlike men. <laughs> men are often insensitive, almost autistic sometimes in, in responding to people and their, and their problems. Women have wonderful nurturing instincts, wonderful affections for children and also for people. Of course, women have the same IQ and bigger IQs than men. But here we're not talking about merely the ability to process information logically. We're talking about in the area of spiritual life, formulating spiritual truths Because basically, the strengths of women, their, intu- intu- their sensitivity, their emotional nature, their, their, um, the, way, the way women often respond to people that are suffering and, respond and understand people's situations much better than men, these strengths actually can become weaknesses when faced with the spiritual temptations of Satan, the invasion of Satan. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.3, I'm afraid that as the serpent, serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now you might say I'm saying something quite outrageous and unscientifically true. Well, um, 50 years ago I was, I was studying philosophical psychology at, uh, at uh, university. In fact, actually, um, also when I did my... Um, PGCE, my, my uh, teaching qualification. I had a, a lecturer in psychology um, who, um, a female lecturer in psychology at Cambridge, that um, we were working through various various subjects, but we, one of the things we dealt with was the way social pressure works upon males and females. And in fact, I did, we, we didn't even realize that that was what she was going to talk about. Um, but she mentioned an experiment, basically, which I'm not going to go into, take too long, but where groups of people are tested as how they're affected by the opinions of others. And it was been conducted hundreds of times over tens of thousands of people, um, where basically you put people in a darkened room, a light is flashed on the wall, it's actually only six inches wide, but then everybody afterwards gathers around in a circle, 20, 20, 25 people, 24 of them all say it's six foot long. One person think, well, that, it was six inches, wasn't it? He doesn't realize the other 24 people are actors and they've been told to say this. Now, it's discovered that actually a certain proportion of people... Um, because 24 people have said it's six, six feet long rather than six inches long, they, they say, yeah, it was six inches long. And when they take a lie detector test, they actually believe it was six inch long. They actually completely deceive themselves and say, oh, it was six inches long, and then they misremember it and say, yeah, oh, yeah, it was six inches long because of social pressure, that effect upon the human psyche. Now, this lady, you know, talked through this experiment. It sounded very interesting. She said, I have to say this. I'm a feminist. I'm a very staunch feminist. But it's very strange that there's a large proportion of women that are affected by social pressure and not so much men. In fact, she said it was quite an amazing contrast between men and women in that experiment. Now, 
I'm not saying this is um, the total answer to what Paul is saying, but it certainly indicates a, a direction of, of an explanation, which is that a, a woman, by her personality and by the constitution, not only of her brain, body, and genetics, but by her soul, is more prone to be deceived by social pressure and by the, maybe the, the, um, the uh, temptations of Satan, um, the delusions of Satan, than men. Maybe, maybe that's, that's the reason. But it's certainly something in that respect that Paul is talking about. But you may be listening to me online, or you may be listening in your pews, saying, oh, you're talking rubbish. All I would say is this. My explanation for, for, for that reason may be rubbish, but what is clear is Paul is clearly saying that women should not be teachers or over overseers, pastors, as usually we call these people. Um, and he says that, you know, such is the practice in all of the churches. He, I mean, I'm just going to carry on reading uh, it for a second. But I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she should remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through ch- childbearing if... They continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Right, well, I'm going to finish there. I've gone way over time. Well, I've done 40, I've done an hour. Um, But uh, we're going to move on to Zoom straight away. But let me just close in prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, we do thank you for um, the, the word of God, which shows us how important women are in your church. Oh God, what a tragedy it would have been, Lord, if uh, the women had not been around, Lord, in in Britain in the last hundred years. Oh Father, uh, maybe Christianity would have died, Lord, if if we'd have lost the women, the praying women. Maybe all there would be left would be heresy and uh, and just uh, uh, congregations uh, which were dead. But Lord, we thank you Lord, we thank you for those godly women in thousands of churches in Britain that have prayed, have worked, have toiled without any uh, limelight, without any recognition by men or women. And yet, Lord, we know they are recognized by you. And uh, their work has been wonderful. And we thank you for the churches that have survived uh, through godly women and and their work. And, uh, Lord, we do pray that you will grant in our church in Poplar that our, our women, young and old, will uh, uh, be ministering to your glory in wonderful ways in these coming years, Lord. Um, we also pray, Lord, that you will help us to understand what uh, um, Paul says. We pray, Lord, for all of the churches that appear to be completely denying a simple teaching that's, that is there and can't be explained away with all of these all of these. Uh, uh, sophisticated attempts to explain it away. We thank you your word is, is quite simple and straightforward. And we pray, Lord, that you will help them to understand. And, Lord, uh, encourage, uh, Lord, the women who are proclaiming the word to carry on proclaiming the word. Um, but at the same time, Lord, uh, not, to, uh, uh, not, for them, not to think they're in positions of pastors or oversight or, or uh, regular teaching of the word of God. And uh, so we thank you, Lord, uh, for your word, and we pray, Lord, you'll guide us as we have our discussions now. In Jesus' name, amen.